oftentimes when the Buddha taught, <clears throat> he liked to present a sort of map of the whole path, or a description really of the whole path as it unfolds from its most basic sort of elements and beginnings and building blocks all the way to complete final liberation, the end of the path. And he liked to often present that for his uh, students, for his listeners. I also get the sense with the Buddha that he liked to wet people's appetites uh, in, in, in that presentation. So a little bit, that's what I want to do tonight, really more in the sense of um, describing a map, presenting a map, presenting a look at kind of where this practice potentially can unfold, can lead. So I want to talk tonight about the four jhanas, what's called the four jhanas, which are states of deep samadhi, deep samatha, deep absorption in concentration. Jhana is a word, is a Pali word, and it's spelled J-H-A-N-A. In Sanskrit, the word is dhyana, D-H-Y-A-N-A. What I would just like to say to, uh, to start is to, to put a question out for you to hold lightly during the talk and to kind of keep in the background, which is, what happens when you hear about this stuff? What happens in, in the mind? What's the reaction? And how, how are you listening? So, if one hears about uh, states further along than, than we are at the present moment, what does the mind do with that? Does it say... Uh, it's rubbish where I am now, it's worthless, it's, it's not worth anything. That's what I want. Does it dismiss my present experience? Is that Rebecca back there? You're welcome to come in. Um, does it dismiss the present experience? Does it find something in a description of something that we don't already have, does it use that to put ourselves down in the present? It's just that inner critic again. U- using whatever it can to, to kind of press down on the self and berate the self. Or sometimes we hear something and it just sounds like, uh, not, it, somehow we're turned off. And if we're turned off, like, what's, what's the reason there? What's going on there? So just to a very light question, how, how are you listening? How are we listening to this? And what's happening as we listen? Just to notice the reactions. In a way, this is very, you know, we've been here, I don't know, three, three and a half days or something. And out of a five-day retreat, I don't particularly expect what I'm going to, most of what I'm talking about tonight to be really present much in your experience right now. So it's, it's very early days we're talking about. However, for some people, been here much longer, some people have uh, a long history of this kind of practice, <clears throat> and it will speak definitely to what's in their experience. For others, even in the days that we've had so far, there have been glimpses of something that's a little bit out of the ordinary experience that one is used to. And so 
all of that may be possible. For the most part, for mo- most of you tonight, it would just be a matter of kind of sitting back and listening to something, listening to a description of where this might unfold. And, you know, I've put an enormous amount of material out just so far in the retreat. And for once, for the most part, you don't actually have to do much with this tonight. It's just listen, sit back and kind of hear about it. So, this comfortable feeling, however it is that that I've been talking about and pointing to and and that we've been encouraging, slowly, slowly, and in a non-linear way, we begin to develop that. We begin to develop it. And as it's developing, the mind begins to like it more and more. It's comfortable, it's pleasant, it's enjoyable, it's easeful, whatever. And because of that, the mind can settle down in it more. And as the mind settles down in it more, it grows. And you get this kind of feedback loop going on and and a kind of resonance set up. And eventually it develops and it might become more steady. It might also really grow in intensity, but it it may not grow that much in intensity. There's a word in Pali called piti, P-I-T-I, and that's usually translated as rapture, or sometimes as pleasure, sometimes as delight, but let's use just the word piti. It's hard to say, to draw a dividing line, where that comfortable feeling that may be ever so humble right now where that begins to move into the territory where we could call it piti. Maybe it's just a spectrum. Maybe there actually isn't a dividing line. So this comfortable feeling, we could call that piti. But we could also say there are actually many types of piti. So even right now, this comfortable feeling, if we had the time and went through everyone, describe your comfortable feeling, we get a lot of different descriptions. Similarly with piti. So... A lot of different ways it manifests and a lot of different strengths as well. Sometimes very unremarkable, sometimes so strong it's like being hit by a, a struck by lightning. It's un- unbearably intense, the kind of rapture and words like bliss and ecstasy are not, uh, you know, not off the mark. But piti can manifest anyway. It could be a, a warmth, an opening, a tingling, a kind of pleasant vibration, um, a lightness. Uh, can be many, many qualities it can have. But the basic qualifier for it is that it's pleasant feeling arising out of meditation. Now even that I'd have to qualify because sometimes people get it outside of the meditation. It has more to do with an openness of being. One's in nature or listening to music or just emotionally very open. And that very openness of being allows the energy channels in the body to open up, if we use that language. And, there's, and the energy flows and there's, there's pleasantness, there's comfort there. There's piti there. So this piti begins to come into the experience, and it can be sporadically at first, but it begins to develop and begins to get a little more steady, and then a lot more steady. And one has a couple of choices as a meditator, in a way one can also develop the capacity to do both. One is to keep the breath, as I've been describing, as something that kind of nurtures and bathes that pleasant feeling. And in a way sometimes the breath and the piti can kind of mix together 
and they become almost indistinguishable as if one is breathing this piti, breathing this pleasant feeling. Or one can let the breath go and let it be very much in the background or even lose touch with it and the piti comes more to the fore. And that becomes what is the object, that becomes the object of concentration, that becomes the thing that the mind is focusing on. And one begins to develop this and focus on it and enable it to spread and fill the whole body. So the whole body is actually saturated with a pleasant feeling. And again, that could be extremely, extremely pleasant or just a little bit pleasant. I'll come back to this, but actually that degree of intensity of it is is less important than the fact that it's spread and it's steady. So, when this PT, this nice feeling, this pleasant feeling that's come from meditation, when that's steady and it's lasting, you know, minutes and longer, and it's suffusing the whole body, and the mind is really, really enjoying it, and the mind kind of absorbs into it, really rubs its nose into it, really dissolves into it, really gets inside it and gets to know it. That state is called the first jhana, the first uh, absorption or the first state of concentration. The the Buddha had uh, very beautiful poetic images for, for uh, the jhanas. I'll just read you each as, as, I, as I go through them. So, he's, he's talking about something. He, he enters, in this case he could, could be she, of course. He enters and abides in the first jhana and makes the rapture and pleasure drench, steep, fill and pervade this body so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure just as a skilled bathman or a bathman's apprentice heaps bath powder in a metal basin and, sprinkling it gradually with water, kneads it until the moisture wets his ball of bath powder. So in those days, they didn't have, you couldn't go to the supermarket and buy you know, a bar of soap. There would be actually someone in the public baths mixing soap powder into a ball for each individual bather, and they would mix it and give this thing to the, the person. Kneads it until the moisture wets his ball of bath powder, soaks it and pervades it inside out, inside and out, yet the ball itself does not ooze. So too he makes the rapture and pleasure drench, steep, fill and pervade this body so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the rapture and pleasure. So the, the, the important thing, is quite, it's interesting to know, it's quite an active image. You know, this person is really mixing something. Sometimes with this comfortable feeling that, again, please remember I'm talking probably, maybe for many people here in the future, but one is actively kind of mixing that through the body, kind of pushing, oh, how do my legs feel? Getting it down there, mixing it in the body. At other times it will be much more kind of hands-off and subtle the way that one gets it to spread. It's almost like just letting it spread or opening up the awareness and, and then it spreads. But the Buddha chooses quite an active image, which is quite interesting. And so one 
learns that and one learns to do that and one does it over and over and over and really begins to enjoy it and that state begins to deepen. And in time it ripens. It ripens into what's called the second jhana which is quite similar except a couple of things have changed. In the background, so to speak, in the first jhana there was this piti there and in the background was a kind of happiness, like very deep happiness. But the piti is so strong that oftentimes a meditator doesn't notice even that there is a lot of happiness there. In the second jhana what happens is the the happiness comes to the fore and the piti goes a little bit to the background. The piti is still very much there. But what's really prominent in the experience of the second jhana is happiness. Un- really unbelievable happiness. I mean, very, very profound outpouring in the being of a very deep, incredibly fulfilling happiness. The other factor that happens in the second jhana is that it, in the first jhana, for a lot of people, it's actually still possible to use reflective thought and kind of evaluate how's the meditation going, a bit more of this, a bit, um, you know, actually think about the breath, should I make it longer now, etc., uh, what's called applied and evaluating thought. That kind of disappears in the second jhana in the sense that it's the mind can't follow a thought in, in that state. So thoughts as, as something that the mind follows have kind of disappeared. And once there's really nothing going on but this happiness, beautiful welling up of happiness. The Buddha has a very lovely image for, for this. Just as though there were a lake, just as though there were a mountain lake whose waters welled up from below. So you've got a mountain spring feeding a lake whose waters welled up from below and it had no inflow from east, west, north or south and would not be replenished from time to time by showers of rain. Then the cool fount of water welling up in the lake would make the cool water drench, steep, fill and pervade the lake so that there would be no part of the whole lake unpervaded by cool water. So too, he makes the rapture and pleasures, talking about the rapture and happiness this time, born of, born of concentration, drench, steep, fill and pervade this body so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the happiness and rapture. You have to remember they're living in a very hot climate, so the idea of a cool is actually quite appealing. <laughs> Whereas August in Devon might be. But um, to listeners, that would have been a very beautiful. Can you even can you hear the beauty of the image? You have got this lake it's just being fed, and that's in a way the, the poet. I find the poetic images incredibly precise. Somehow poetic. They don't work for everyone, but they're really quite precise. And again, a meditator gets used to that. And this all, this all takes, really takes time, I'm talking about. And get a, a meditator gets used to that and gets used to really drenching, really absorbing in that. After a time, that, that it's almost as if the happiness completely fulfills the being. So what we want is happiness. And here it is just like a waterfall of it or, or in a, as the Buddha says, an inner spring of it. And we, we have enough. The heart feels like I, I have enough, totally fulfilled by by the happiness. And then something happens; it begins to mellow. 
It's like the happiness begins to mellow. And it goes through a couple of stages in a way. It passes through a stage where there's this profound sense of contentment. Now, it's, it's interesting. If, if we say rapture or ecstasy or bliss, describing the first jhana, and then we say contentment begins to move into the third jhana, most people say, well, rapture and bliss and ecstasy sound much better. But actually, there's something about this contentment. It's much more satisfying. It's something that we don't really taste in our everyday life. It's, it's, these, these are states that are beyond the emotional range and the, certainly the range of consciousness that most human beings would be used to. So it's a profound uh, sense of satisfaction, fulfillment, contentment that's also very, very peaceful, exquisitely peaceful. And that begins to deepen and the, the sense of peacefulness begins to really uh, come to the fore. And at this point, the rapture has sort of faded from the experience. So the sort of buzz of ecstasy, etc., has, has, has faded. And, and what's just there is a very mellow, indescribably beautiful, sweet, tender uh, peacefulness that's just suffusing everything. The Buddha again. A similar kind of image. Just as in a pond of blue or red or white lotuses, some lotuses that are born and grow in the water thrive immersed in the water without, without rising out of it. And cool water drenches, steeps, fills and pervades them to their tips and their roots so that there is no part of all those lotuses unpervaded by cool water. So too, he makes the pleasure, really the peacefulness, the happiness, divested of rapture, the rapture is gone, drench, steep, fill and pervade this body, so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the pleasure, divested of rapture. In a way, each of these stages has kind of gradations within it. Um, and it can be that that peacefulness begins to kind of expand out. So it very much starts with contentment and peacefulness is here. And then it, it kind of really expands out. And it's almost as if one is in a realm of peacefulness. Everything, so that when the birds sing out there or crow or whatever they do, that, that they almost, they're singing of peace. They're expressing peace. Everything gets colored that way. Everything everything is, is speaking of peace. It's very hard in that kind of state to be disturbed by uh, sensory jolts, etc. You might you definitely might hear them still, but they're, they're, a sense of peace is pervading through everything. And again, one develops that and this really takes time, etc. And eventually that deepens too. And one moves to the fourth jhana, which one's almost submerged or cocooned in a state of total stillness. The, the mind and the body have kind of dissolved uh, in, in stillness. The body is very much just, dis- all that's there is a sense of um, exquisite stillness. And the mind too, dissolved in stillness. That stillness, though, is very bright. There's a real sense of um, 
incredible aliveness. And sometimes it's visually very bright as well. Sometimes all these states are visually very bright, like white, golden light. But there's an incredible sense of aliveness and presence, the sense of really, really being there, like this moment, very, very alive, this moment, very present. And it's also very refined. So what, what's happening here is the, the states are getting more and more refined uh, in a way, rapture relative to the stillness of, of what I'm talking about now is, is something quite gross. It's very buzzy and sort of yee-haw kind of thing. Uh, this is something very, very uh, exquisite and incredibly refined. It's very, very subtle, extremely subtle. One of the things that's happening as the mind deepens through this is that the mind itself is becoming more refined. It's able to notice and stay with very, very refined objects. So the peacefulness in the third jhana is very, very refined. And it it would be hard, it's almost like we, we train the mind to stay, to be able to stay with that degree of refinement. Now sometimes we hear about this or, or whatever and we want to kind of rush through all this. It, there... I, I feel it's more useful if, if one just spends time in each stage and lets it ripen, like a fruit ripening. It's just ready to move into the next stage. Sometimes you can kind of encourage it and nudge it, but for the most part, it's, it just ripens. Buddha's image for that one. He sits pervading this body with a pure, bright mind, pure bright awareness, so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by the pure bright awareness, just as though a man were sitting covered from the head down with a white cloth, so that there would be no part of his whole body unpervaded by the white cloth, so too he sits pervading the body with a pure bright awareness, so that there is no part of his whole body unpervaded by that. So it's interesting, it does sound a lot less dramatic, but actually... Without exception, a meditator finds them more more fulfilling as they go deeper. It's sometimes people get into states like these, but they're not. I don't know. They're not. Um, it's all a bit amorphous. In other words, uh, it's quite important to know this is this is this state and this is this state and this is that state. There's something quite important about that, rather than it just I'm in a state that really feels extraordinary and very good. Um, something about knowing each one. They can be experienced as a kind of the mind making a quantum leap from one state to the other. You're really in something different now, or they can be experienced as a continuum, both. But it's really good to know them as separate and really know, ah, oh, this is the second jhana, this is, etc. Now I mentioned sometimes, in fact quite often, people get secondary effects, um, what's called nimittas in Pali, N-I-M-I-T-T-A. The most common one is bright white light. And, and some of you may even be experiencing that now. It's like the, the mind produces kind of bright white light. It's just a sign that, that the mind is deepening in, in the concentration. Sometimes these can be a bit of a distraction, but if you can, if a meditator can blend them in with uh, the rapture or blend them in with the happiness, etc., then they can actually be really useful. But they're not essential to what's going on. Sometimes they get a little overemphasized in the teaching of all this. What is essential is the suffusion, 
the, the whole body kind of steeped in this, the pervading of the whole body. If you notice, every time the Buddha talks about it, he uses that word drenched, suffused, steep, etc. That's actually essential. And the other essential thing is the steadiness. The word jhana is related to a word jayati, which is the word for the steadiness of a candle flame. So there's something very, very steady in the state. What's those factors, the suffusion and the steadiness, are actually more important than intensity, like you know, mind-blowing ecstasy, etc. Is actually not so important than the steadiness or the suffusion. And also, interestingly, the degree of absorption. So some people say it's not a jhana until someone could chop your head off and you wouldn't realize. Um, maybe there are that degree of absorption, you know, and I guess that could come in handy. But um, <laughs> but actually that's not the significant factor. That's actually not the significant factor. There'll be a, a continuum of absorption. Sometimes one feels more absorbed, sometimes less. Of course one's trying to be more absorbed. But that's actually not so important. One all... Uh, also tends to assume that the more intense and the more absorbed, the better, but not always. So someone might have extreme absorption, extreme intensity of experience, but there's, there's actually not much wisdom or not much, not much difference happening in, in a person's life. So those aren't really the key factors. It's possible, and I would say it's strongly, strongly preferable with all of this, to actually... A meditator can learn to develop mastery of each of these states. So what that means is one is able (coughs) to sit down or stand or walk or whatever it is and just say, bliss, and there it comes. Uh, Or just say, stillness, and there it comes. Just a very slight intention and and there it is. And then one's able to sustain that and and absorb into it. that might sound incredibly far-fetched, but it's actually not. And in fact, there are people in this room right now who, who have been here for a while or have been doing this kind of practice for a while who are quite able to do that. A mastery at being able to enter, at being able to uh, come out of it, being able to sustain it, etc. Um, so even possible to you know, go for long walks and be in one of these states and the body just kind of knows what to do, where to put the feet, etc. This is all actually very, very possible. So that degree of mastery, I think, is really, really preferable in terms of making a long-term difference to one's life over a kind of glimpse of an experience, which, you know, can be helpful or can be not helpful. If an experience, if a jhanic experience is one-off, like you had this one experience that was like, wow, and then never again, that's when it's dangerous in terms of attachment, because the mind just went, wow, that was so different, I just want to get back there. Once it begins starting to be a bit more regular and a bit more accessible, the problem of attachment is actually not not that great at all. The the Buddha also emphasized this mastery and the kind of letting things ripen. He has this image of a foolish cow that's grazing in a field in the mountains. And then this foolish cow thinks, I wonder what that field, that field looks pretty good. I wonder what that's like. And it has to go down this mountainside into a sort of ravine to get to the other one. But it goes down there out of you know, curiosity for the, the other field. And then it can't get out of the ravine. It can't get to the new field and it can't get back to the old one. And so there's something, you know, the, 
The idea is just stay where you are and let things ripen. Part of this mastery that's involved, that, that I'm saying is actually quite possible with, with long-term dedication to this, is that one gets the sense that these are kind of like frequencies or radio waves that actually are, are in the air all the time. And what one is doing is sort of tuning one's mind, tuning one's radio tuner into a certain frequency. You tune it into rapture or you tune it into happiness or peacefulness or whatever. And then you just abide with that. So it can be a, a little like you know, opening your wardrobe and you've got clothes hanging on the thing. You say, hmm, that one. But the sense of what's going on begins to change and it moves to, moves to the, the, the very real sense like they're there all the time. They're actually there all the time and it's more a sense of tuning in to something. Something quite important about that shift. So, something with all this attitude again. And I remind you of the question that I started with. Just how, how are you hearing this right now? How are you hearing this? But for a practitioner who's going through all this or has the possibility to go through all this, even then attitude is really, really important. It's very common to kind of grasp at this word jhana or, or um, kind of want to have a badge that says, yeah, first jhana, you know, have stripes or something. So the ego can get hold of it that way. It's very easy. Much better to regard this as a kind of lifetime deepening. In, over a lifetime, we're deepening in, in this beautiful, beautiful exploration of, of the deepening of consciousness, the deepening of samadhi. And there's just a kind of lifetime commitment to it as part of our whole practice. And slowly, slowly, these things can, can come to us if we're interested in them, if we put the work in. So I actually, when I'm working with people one-on-one, I, I almost never use the word jhana. Oftentimes, it's a word that people grab hold of in the wrong way and kind of make, make too much of or something. So I actually talk much more in terms of how's the happiness doing or are you able to pervade the comfortable feeling or something and introduce the word jhana much, much later when, that's, when things are much more settled and, and normalized, etc. It's also important to realize that for, for someone who goes into this, there will still be the whole continuum of experience and all that is still the whole continuum of difficulty and effort level, I think is what I'm trying to say. And that will still be very much part of the experience, that a part of the practice. So sometimes one finds oneself in a beautiful state and it feels completely effortless, totally uh, suffused and right there and just totally <coughs> effortless. Sometimes, in fact more often perhaps, there's a degree of, of tweaking going on. Someone told me, in fact a lot of people told me today, I've been using words that they don't understand that apparently are American words. <laughs> so if I talk American, say something, is tweaking okay? okay. There's a degree of tweaking going on. And what I mean by that is one's, one's still doing some subtle work in, in the absorption, just a little bit more of this, a little bit less, just relax a little bit, working with all these factors that I've been throwing out. It's just on a more subtle level. That's going on. So sometimes it feels effortless. Sometimes there's a degree of tweaking going on. Sometimes there are niggles going on even, and you're trying, you know, one is working to do the best that one can to iron them out. 
sometimes the hindrances are sort of around, but they're not prominent. It's as if they're like a little pack of sort of terrier dogs, but they're just outside the door, yapping, yapping, yapping. They're not quite in the foreground of the experience. And sometimes it's full-blown hindrance attack, or multiple hindrance attack. All that is the practice of samadhi, even the practice of, of jhana practice. It's all involved. So to, to actually expect that, there's, there's a, a subtle work going on quite a lot of the time, and sometimes not so subtle at all. Okay, so hearing about this, and even before we heard about this, and just in terms of the practice that we're doing, this is a question that has come up uh, from a few people, and it's very important. Is this escapism? Am I escaping into some kind of la-la land of, um, you know? Am I not dealing with my psychological difficulties that need to get dealt with? This is actually a very important question. It comes out of a lot of integrity and honesty. And it's important that we ask this question. Now, I touched on it, I think, in the talk on the first evening, I think. You have to see, to, to repeat a little bit, but you have to see what we're doing here on this retreat in context. It's one kind of slice out of the whole of what practice is. And we're just emphasizing that slice for the purpose of this retreat. So to see it in context. Am I able, as a practitioner, am I able to meet my emotional, what's difficult emotionally? Am I able to open to what's difficult emotionally? Do I know how to do that? Can I draw near? Can I open? Can I touch and hold what's going on difficult? Uh, what's going on that's difficult, emotionally, physically, psychologically, etc. Am I able to do that? And am I able to put that down and go into something else? And am I also able to kind of understand what might be feeding that difficulty and understand it in a way that diffuses it? So all that is part of practice. We're just emphasizing one part right now. If I'm able to do all that, then the question of, Am I avoiding, am I not avoiding, becomes quite secondary. And it's like, well, sometimes I can do this and sometimes I can do that. And if I've chosen to, I don't know, bliss out for a while, and that's the wrong choice, it'll, it'll show itself. It'll show itself. Um, but the, the, the fact of one's ability to move between the two gives one more freedom. And it's like one's less worried about kind of making the wrong choice there. You can do both. And it's not that one exclusively um, does one or the other. So is it escapism? The Buddha actually would refer to, he calls this, this is an escape. You know what? The first jhana is an escape from the hindrances. It's an escape from sloth and torpor and restlessness and doubt and greed and, and anger and aversion. It's, it, it's actually an escape from all that that's difficult. And then the second jhana is an escape from being caught up in, in thought or, or really from thought, from following thought. The third jhana is an escape from the sort of gross, relative grossness of rapture, etc., etc. They're, they're escapes. Is it an escape in terms of our connection with other people? Absolutely not. What one realizes as one goes deeply into samadhi practice is that there is really love in this. And, and the samadhi, what just starts as the comfortable feeling, when it grows, particularly when it reaches the happiness stage, it's actually got a lot of love in it. There's a real quality of love kind of mixed in with the happiness. 
And as that goes deeper into like the territory of the third jhana, there's a real tenderness in there. The heart is extremely tender and open with all, with all of that. And all of this makes us, in a way, more emotionally available to ourselves, to others, and to life. It's that we're, we're being bathed in this love, in this tenderness, and it, it really opens up the availability in, in our life. Having access in one's life to this kind of independent sense of happiness and well-being gives a tremendous confidence. We just feel a confidence that I can be happy. I can be happy. And that's a big deal. It's a big deal to know that I can be happy. And not only that, I can actually be happy in an independent way. Not so needy. doesn't make us cold and cut off, but we're just not so needy. Again, as the samadhi develops, there's a real faith that comes up. You see, oh, my experience totally matches what the Buddha said, and then my next experience totally matches what the Buddha and then And it keeps going, and you think, well, maybe if this much is true, one, two, three, four, etc., it's probably all true. It gives a real, real faith. There's incredible healing in all of this. So any even pre-jhanic samadhi, what we're mostly dealing with on this retreat, is just that, what I've been saying, bathing the body, bathing the sense of well-being. That healing that comes from that, it just deepens, it just deepens. Incredibly healing for the body, incredibly healing for the mind, the emotional body, the uh, nervous system, all of that. There a lot of healing here. A lot of people find their what to say, intuitive capacity is kind of growing. There's something about this that opens up the intuition quite deeply and the sensitivity to life is also opened. Now tomorrow I'm going to talk a lot about um, the relationship of concentration of samatha and insight. I just want to touch very briefly this evening on a, a little bit of that. All this that I've just talked about has a dramatic effect, or should have a dramatic effect, on our relationship with greed and sense desire and also on aversion. I have something, one has something here that's actually a lot better, uh, to put it grossly, a lot better than what one can get through sense pleasure. You just th- There's less of this kind of hunger in the mind to go out. One just has enough. That's a shift that particularly starts happening around the second jhana. There's a real re-evaluating of where the happiness comes from in life. And it really sinks down into the being, where the happiness is, really. Sometimes, and again, I don't know if this sounds crass or not, but sometimes, you know, just taking, say, the first three jhanas, I wonder what that's worth in in money terms, <laughs> ridiculous question, of course, but I don't know, millions, billions, whatever you could buy with money, won't give you that same satisfaction. You know, massive yacht that's moored in the Caribbean with waiters and you know people who fan you and bring you those cocktails with umbrellas in and stuff. You know. Imagine you had that whenever you wanted and you had a private jet that could fly you there. Whenever, whenever you got a little stressed out at work. Just uh, 
Jeeves. <laughs> and along comes a chauffeur and then takes you to your private jet and off you go. And the azure, clear waters and the beautiful blue sky, etc., etc., etc. It doesn't compare. It doesn't compare. I don't know how much money would, one would need to have all that. So sorry to be crass, but... Um, The, uh, one of the other insights in, in the third jhana there's a, the degree of peacefulness one realizes it's come from it's come from a, there's a kind of wish or rather put it this way there's a wishlessness that comes with that peacefulness one, one, one to, one's totally satisfied totally contented and with that it's like one doesn't wish for anything one's not wanting anything more or anything less and an insight drops peacefulness comes from wishlessness from not wishing, from having no wishes, and that—that's the deepest kind of peacefulness. With all of these jars, I touch on this some of the point that there's actually they're progressively getting to know less self. There's less self around. It's like the self is just getting more and more in the background and being quiet. It's not being so built up. The Buddha said, develop samadhi, develop samadhi. When the samadhi is really developed, the mind can move mountains, he said. Let alone measly ignorance. Now to, to move ignorance means to be completely enlightened. He said, once your samadhi is developed, it's like, that's easy. It's a tremendous resource in our life. And sometimes we think, well, how's that going to apply to my daily life? Actually, with practice of this, it's possible to have... Things like um, rapture, comfortable feeling, PT, and even happiness or more, peacefulness, etc., as qualities, maybe not full jhanic absorption as one's moving through the business of the day, but as qualities that are actually quite accessible. And one begins to be able to just draw on them in the middle of a difficult situation. One just draws on that quality and it changes one's relationship with the situation. This is actually much more accessible than one might think. There was once, I can't remember the whole story, but there was once a novice monk called Kunda and someone had kind of said to him, said, you Buddhist monks and nuns, you're addicted to lying and cheating and stealing and killing and sense pleasure and greed and all of that. And being very new, he kind of didn't know what to respond. And so he went back to the Buddha and, and the Buddha said to him, well, if someone says that, you should say, no, we're not addicted to that. But we are addicted to four forms of pleasure-seeking. So my disciples are addicted to four forms of pleasure-seeking. He uses this word, addicted. We're addicted to four forms of pleasure-seeking. And those are the pleasures of the first, second, third, and fourth jhana. We're addicted to that. And he goes on to say, because they are entirely conducive, entirely conducive to disenchantment, etc., 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 to awakening, to nirvana. Entirely conducive to nirvana. This is a pleasure that I will allow myself. This is a pleasure that leads to nirvana, he says. He's very, very clear about that. And he goes on to say in the same passage, there are four fruits that can be expected for one who is given to this kind, these four forms of pleasure-seeking. And they are the four, basically the four stages of enlightenment, the four stages of awakening. 
And that's what's to be expected. This is very, very clear. Pursue this because it leads to awakening. Develop this pleasure because it leads to awakening. So this question of attachment, it's, it's, it's not a... Very, or put it this way, it's very rarely a problem. Put, put it that way. There, there are cases where it is, but it's, it's very rarely. I think I used the, the image of a ladder at some, in one of the talks. So it's a little bit like what's quite common from working one-on-one with, with someone and they're going through uh, this. They reach the sort of level of the third, <laughs> the third jhana and this exquisite peacefulness. And then they, I have to prod them a little bit and check, hey, are you still keeping up the first jhana? Because they look back and all that ecstasy and all that kind of buzz uh, seems something like, I don't want that. It's, it's, it seems gross. And the mind actually kind of withdraws from it. There's, there's a, a natural kind of letting go of the lower states, and that just progressively builds. So to, to follow that image of the ladder, it's almost like one's grabbing this rung up there, which enables one to let go of the rung down there, and then one grabs the rung above, and progressively, progressively. So there is a way that the path of samatha this, this unfolding of, of all this in its depths actually leads all in itself leads all the way to awakening. It's one of the sort of routes that are available that lead all the way to nirvana. But always it's part of the whole path. And so all the factors that I began the retreat talking about generosity and ethics and loving kindness and, and insight and all that, that's always part of the path. And practitioners vary in the let's put it this way, in the degree that they emphasize samatha. So some people emphasize it very, very little, and some people emphasize it really, really a lot, and some people are kind of medium around. That's all fine, and kind of that depends on individual personalities and predispositions and, and that kind of stuff. But it, it is possible just in and of itself, if you're reflecting on the samatha in the right way, that it leads all the way to awakening. On this retreat, as I said, we're really emphasizing the samatha. We're really emphasizing that that slice of the path. Tomorrow, I'm going to talk about the relationship of concentration of samatha and insight and how they feed each other, because that's really what, what, what goes on. The samatha feeds the insight in a very deep way, and the insight feeds the samatha, and they're mutually reinforcing So a little bit of a map and I think what I really want to say is that actually this, what I've described tonight is actually more available than it it might sound. I don't know how it sounds actually and it will sound different ways to different people. But it's actually more available than one might think. It's actually there for a practitioner if one wants it. How are you doing? Are you tired? Are you? I could open it up for questions now, or should we not? Okay. Well, let's let's take a little time and do that. Um, if you're not too tired, then um, any questions about what I've just been talking about? Yeah, Tim. Second jhana. Yeah. Um, 
in the first jhana you've got a lot of physical uh, rapture and physical ecstasy and in the second jhana what comes to be more prominent is happiness the quality of, of joy or happiness very very deep happiness and that sort of takes the uh, center stage and one just absorbs in that happiness the rapture or physical ecstasy is still there but it's sort of a little bit in the back not really in the background it's just not as prominent as the happiness and the other factor that sort of defines the second jhana is that it's there may be a little flicker of thought a sort of or an image you know this and that's kind of sparking in the mind but it's actually not possible to sort of follow a thought or to think a thought so to speak so thought has kind of gone and happiness is really filling the experience okay is that sabu yeah, yeah. The preconception is getting in the way. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, it's definitely a potential issue. Yeah. I mean, there's two words. One is preconceptions, and one is expectations. Now, yesterday in the talk, I very briefly talked about kind of having one's mind so much on the results that one's neglecting paying attention to the causes. It's like, you know, what are the causes? Well, the thing that we've been doing, nurturing. Playing with the breath, playing with the mind, etc., nurturing that pleasant feeling. If I'm thinking, well, you know, it should be like this or something, that's really going to get in the way. In terms of preconceptions, that can work both ways. Sometimes, yeah, sort of one gets into a state and kind of wants to paint it in a way that it's, you know, now I've got that first jhana badge, etc. But in other ways, it can be helpful in just kind of. Um, not freaking someone out that when they have a new experience. Oh, this has this is referred to. This is common. This is something that actually people have been experiencing for thousands of years, and it has a context and it has a framework. So yeah, I'm aware of that, but also I think there's a benefit for providing that framework and that map. And some one of you, like I remember doing solitary retreats in the past and working on samatha and getting into some states, which I only realized, oh, this is the whatever jhana, because I had read the description before, and then, and then I could kind of work with that and relate it to what I'd experienced before. So it can be a problem, but can also be useful. And it's, you know, it's a call. As I said at the beginning, the, the Buddha seemed fond of doing that, so humbly I follow his example. But um, it's, it's a good point. Kathy, yeah. There's a loaded one, yeah. Did everyone hear that? Are we saying you can't get enlightened without the jhanas? Am I saying, or... or, or (laughs) 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 Is that machine? (laughs) Um, the The Buddha said, there's no... There's no jhana without wisdom... But he also said there's no wisdom without jhana. The, the, the degree of that might vary. In other words, um, what my teacher usually said is you, you can't be enlightened without an experience of at least the first jhana. Um, 
I don't know, to be honest. I don't know. I tend, if it's available for someone, I really tend to emphasize it because what I see, and I'll talk about this tomorrow, what I see is that they're so good for insight, like even more than they are for just like, you know, juice on the path, etc. They do such a lot for insight and for allowing insight to really deepen and take root in the being and uh, for different kinds of understanding to unfold. Um, I... I wouldn't like to say, and I, that would what that would involve was, would be working with a lot of people who actually reach enlightenment and seeing how many of them actually didn't do that. <laughs> there are people at Guy House who reach stages of enlightenment. Um, I, I want to say that actually, uh, that happens here on long term retreat, and um, uh, but I haven't worked with enough of them to know, you know, if that's the case. That's that's all I would say. Um, so it, it, I don't feel it's for me to say. I tend to emphasize them when they're available for a person. I never push someone into this. I never, if they don't want to do it, that's totally fine. I always respect that. But if it's available and they're interested, I, I gently tend to encourage it because I see that it's really good for insight. That's the, most of the reason why, why I would emphasize it. So I'm not really answering your question, but... Is that okay? Okay. Uh, someone, yeah... Yes. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Um, they are very present. I briefly made that point. It's quite, well, it's relatively common for a person to be meditating quite a long time and get a sort of, you know, what could be quite intense experiences, but they're quite vague and they're not really defined. They don't really know, is it this genre or that genre? And I actually think it's important, I'll go into this a little bit perhaps. Um, as part of the context of tomorrow's talk, it is actually important to to be very precise and 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 know. It doesn't mean there can't be some variation in from time to time how each one feels, but there, there is there's a lot of precision. The Buddha is extremely precise in his in his teaching. He's a very precise teacher. Is there movement? Yes, in fact, sorry, I forgot to say, once one's mastered, one can kind of ping-pong around at will. So you're, you're in bliss and you just think, okay, uh, stillness, and you ping-pong there, and, uh, and then you say, okay, some happiness, and, and you can just uh, you know, spend your time. <laughs> Very possible, really, really possible, totally. Um, yeah, yeah, a joy, yeah. I'm not the only one who does it. Is that on or off? <laughs> um, I'm not the only one who does it. The, 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 I'm really not the only one. Um, Dharma is, is very young in the West. It's, you have to see that. You, you think back, where are we now? 2008. When did the Dharma, th- this kind of tradition, insight meditation tradition, took root in the West in, in the m- middle to late 70s? So you're talking about about, about 30 years old. And it came through certain... Two, two or three particular streams of traditions which tended to really not emphasize samatha. Now, I totally respect that, but they, that's just kind of what took hold. As the Dharma is growing, and it's very, very young, you think about a 2,600-year-old tradition has been in the West for 30 years. This is baby time. We are, we are baby time now. And it's just going, there's all kinds of factors. Um, you know, how, how is Dharma meeting modern psychotherapy and psychology? And that's really shaping things. How is Dharma, uh, you know, this tradition meeting other traditions like Tibetan traditions, etc.? There's, there's a whole kind of um, uh, 
birthing process going on. It's very early days. My guess is that in the next 5, 10, 20 years, there'll be lots of different strands available to practitioners. You get, yeah, different people emphasizing one, like I said, and the other. It will be much more available, much much more sort of mainstream. And it's starting to happen already. It's already starting to happen. Um, Historically, there are reasons. It's more to do for the most part, to do with which particular streams were the, were the really popular streams that took root when the Dharma originally came in the 70s, or the insight meditation tradition originally came in the 70s. Is that? Yeah. Uh, Julie, right? Yeah. Um, I was just wondering, in um, the way that we're practicing in the West, yes. uh, we tend to have busy lives yeah. and come to a retreat once or twice a year, maybe on very yeah. short time. Yeah, yeah. Do you see a potential danger with our tendency to grasp at sense pleasures and quick fixes yeah. that we might um, embrace this strand of the practice and forget all about perhaps other strands that develop compassion? Or do you think it can be a real tool in developing compassion? I think it can be a real tool. Like I said, it brings compassion. There's no question about it. Once just more available, and they're, they're kind of the quality, the, the jhanas themselves are infused with that quality, like real. Love and, t- and tenderness are in there. Um, it's also not a quick fix. This path, there's, there's, it's, it takes a lot of work. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong. It's really, you can see. Has this been hard work? <laughs> it's, it's been hard work. You know, I mean, it doesn't mean to say it's not enjoyable and, and can't be nice at time. At, you know, even a lot of the time. But it's still, even when it's going well, it's still hard work. You know, there's an aspect to it that's hard work. Um, and I suppose that's possible for someone to overemphasize this at the expense of another part of the path. But you, one could do that with any part of the path. And like I, like I said a few times on this retreat, the Dharma is something very wide. This retreat, we're just emphasizing one part. We have to see things in context. And it's almost like being able to do different things, being able to embrace different parts. There might be periods of one's life where one's emphasizing one particular strand of that. And periods of one's life when one's emphasizing another, but that's fine. Um, and people will differ in terms of how much concentration they can do in the middle of a very busy life. And some people are completely fine uh, with with doing it in the middle of busy city and going to work and commuting and all, all that. And, and some people less so. But it's it's still, I would say, much more available than than one would think. Does that answer what you? Yeah. The, the the fact of precision. Yeah, that, yeah. You, that it has to be so precise. Okay. Because that's what, how it came over to me. Okay, yeah, saying. sorry, I didn't mean... I didn't and mean. that seems very kind of up here. And okay, yeah. kind of whole. Right, okay. I think so. Um, okay, what could we replace that with? Um, is it about identifying the feeling? Yeah, there's a. Re- I guess. I guess all I'm saying is that there's a real difference, say, between the first and the second jhana, and it's important to know when you're in one and when you're in the other. That, that's all, and that's not an intellectual process. That's a really embodied, like you just know, like you know, your best friend from your husband or, or whatever. You, you know the difference. So it's not it's really. It's not important to know the name of it. It's 
No. Yes, that it's different. So, like I said, I rarely, when I'm working with someone one on one, I rarely use the word jhana. <laughs> I I wait for the person to use their own language, and then I'll pick up on that language. And if you start using the word, I don't know, joy or delightful something or other, I'll just I'll just mirror that back to you, and I'll use your language. But in the back of my mind, I'm kind of thinking, okay, there there are discrete things which you know. There's this, and then there's this, and then later on you can map them onto first second. But that's actually that's much later. By that point, it's a very intimate experience to you and very embodied, etc. Yeah. yeah? Okay. Maybe one more. Um, uh, Becca, yeah. Um, just a question maybe about the actual practice plan itself. You um, said yesterday in the group um, interview that we had to when this kind of, um, yeah, this, this bliss, this pleasure is rising, to really see it as yeah. to really go for it, really, you know. And um, in doing that, and, and then, well, anyway, then you said this evening, the intensity isn't necessarily as important as the kind of steadiness and the fact that it's sort of all pervasive. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just a kind of question about um, yeah, whether to keep going with that, like you said, just being aware of it and go, because the intensity is just like growing and growing yeah, yeah, and growing. Yeah. And growing. Spreading it, yeah. spreading it. Yeah. yeah. Can you hear that at the back, or is it? Okay. Um, so the question is: is having said that the intensity is not that important, um, Becca saying when when she kind of surrenders to this really lovely feeling, it gets really intense. She can do that, but it's really really intense. Or uh, she can kind of spread it. In, in the body and work on spreading it. Both are important. There will be a, a kind of patch of time where it goes through a period where it's almost too intense a little bit. But you're just going through a phase there. And the whole movement of, of this is towards more mellowness. And so one just has to... You know, sometimes it's, it's unbearably pleasant. And it, it's almost like you just have to weather that period. And, and the more you surrender to it, the, the more... You won't get hung up there, and it will just it will just move. So it's okay. Yeah, go into it, but be very open, yeah. and work also on the spreading it. Yeah, it it will be intense, but it's it's okay. Has has anyone been disturbed? I feel like when I'm like shutting down, it's like, okay, that's too much. You know, like I'm like, yeah, yeah. It's it's quite a common sense. Um, if your body actually starts, inside, yeah. Don't worry about the movements inside. If your body actually starts shaking, see if you can really keep it still and open up inside. Open up the energy channels inside and let it move inside. But see if you can keep the actual physical body still and you're not disturbing anyone at all. I mean, there's quite a common feeling to think it's a bit too much, but it's, it's fine. It's fine. Okay. Uh, maybe one more. Astrid, did you have a question? Um, yeah, well, 
Yeah, yeah. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, thank you for that. Um, there is a progression, and in that sense it's linear. But within that, it's almost like you'll be zigzagging up, up. And so it's, if we do, you know, first jhana, sort of enlightenment, it's, it's like this, you know, and it's going to be all over, non-linear within that larger linearity, if that, if that makes sense. In other words... Some days you're going to feel great. The next sitting you feel it's terrible, that, which is very common. Other, then it's kind of middling. And, but generally, where you are one, one year, you're in a different place the next year, kind of, or the next month, or, or whatever it is. Okay? All right. Um, let's have a bit of quiet to end. So, sorry. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.